Well, some of you might wonder from uh, time to time why it is that we celebrate communion and why it is that we participate in the Lord's Supper every month or so is when we do it. For some of you, it might seem like it becomes a bit of a ritual uh, associated maybe with more uh, liturgical type churches. For some of us, we have to admit admit that sometimes um, it might seem like going through the motions and it comes sadly somewhat uh, mechanical, perhaps meaningless. Or we might not verbalize it, but we come in and we see the table and we think to ourselves, oh, oh yeah, it's communion again. We, we know the routine, we know what to expect, and, and, and then we do it again, just like we've always done it before. Now, I know it's not like that for everyone, all the time at least. All of us, depending on the circumstances that are going on in our lives at that particular time, we'll, we'll have times when thinking through the significance of this will uh, land on us in new and profound ways. Something about what we do will, some, uh, will, will suddenly become alive and meaningful. Or, for those of you who have recently become Christians, this will be very fresh for you as you start to understand in greater ways what God has done in sending Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and then to be raised with him to new life. So why do we celebrate communion? Well, at the foundational level, we do it because Jesus tells us to. We just read that, do this in remembrance of me. We do this because we've been commanded to do it. And and we do this to remember Jesus to remember who he is, to remember why he was sent, to remember what he did, to remember what he did for us. We, we personalize it. And those kinds of remembrances should lift our affections, and they should increase our sense of worship and our sense of adoration. But there are also other benefits of doing this together. One of those is that it helps us hold on to our faith, to hold on to the gospel. It helps us replay the gospel in our minds, which then helps to uh, strengthen and to fortify our faith. It reminds us that our faith is indeed true, that our faith is indeed trustworthy. It forces us to try to understand uh, once again the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for us. If we didn't do this at least once every few weeks, I I suggest that it might actually weaken our personal faith. It might cast doubt into our minds as to the effectiveness and to the truthfulness of what God has done for us in Christ. And so when Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him, it is for our good. We need this. In his kindness, Jesus gave us this ordinance to help and to keep us. He prescribes the Lord's Supper in order to keep us in the faith. This is one of his means of grace in order to do that. As long as we're still in this world, our faith, we all admit, can at some times become shaky. It can become wobbly. It can become unstable. And so the Lord's Supper, when we do it together as a church, helps us to fight against that. It helps us to endure. It helps us to stand fast in the faith. The little book of Jude, right, the second last book of the Bible, is written to help us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude there tells about false teachers who have crept into the church unnoticed, 
teachers who pervert the grace of God, he says. And, and so there are forces at work, even inside the church, sometimes that try to upset the faith of God's people. Upset their faith in the gospel. But at the end of that little letter, he says to the church, But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then at the very end, he gives that benediction that we often say at the end of services. It might sound very familiar to some of you. And it starts off with, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Be glory, majesty, dominion, etc. Well, one of the ways that God keeps us from stumbling is by having us remember Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so our prayers at the Lord's Supper has been, even this morning, maybe faith-strengthening. Maybe you came in here and your faith was weak. You, you were doubting your assurance, doubting who Jesus is. Our prayer is that this has been faith-strengthening and a stabilizing, I hate to call it just an exercise, for all of us this morning. Well, we are not in Jude, we're in 1 Timothy, and we're finishing up in the first part of 1 Timothy this morning, uh, the first chapter. But the Bible is consistent and harmonized in its message, and as Paul writes here at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's encouraging Timothy to help the church there in Ephesus, which is where this letter was written to, which is where Timothy was, during a time when people there were, were, were trying to make the other people in the church waver in their faith, that faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Like Jude, Paul wants Timothy to contend for the faith. Well, that was back then. But in the history of the church, there have always been threats to the faith and to the gospel. And there are still threats to the faith. There are threats to the gospel, and they need to be identified and resisted and quashed. And that's part of why Paul is writing this letter. And that's why God put this letter into his holy word for us today. It's here to encourage us to contend for the faith. The First Timothy version of that is to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare. This is a fight for a strengthened faith, a fight for a pure faith, a fight for a stable faith, a faith that is not in danger of shipwreck. And so let's look at Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Just three verses. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. As far the reading of God's word. Well, I'll just remind you that the reason Paul writes this letter comes later in the, in, in the book, in the letter, in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he says, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, delay in coming, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's why he's writing this which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this whole letter addresses church conduct, church behavior. But at the end of that verse, you see the underlying situation there in Ephesus, which is where Paul is stationing Timothy. He calls the church the pillar and buttress of the truth. That's important because false teachings were being propagated there 
in that church. And Paul sends Timothy in there to clean it up. If we think of it in terms of what I just read, Paul is sending Timothy into a bit of a war zone. And he's asking Timothy to wage the good warfare. It's a tough assignment for Timothy. Having to confront an issue is never easy. And so Paul here is basically encouraging Timothy to engage in a battle to preserve the truth, to preserve the faith, to preserve the gospel. Paul starts off with these military kinds of images. He's picturing Timothy here really as a soldier. Go onto the front and fight the good fight, Timothy. Wage the good warfare. And at the end, when Paul thinks about the faith, he introduces the image of a ship. So it goes from uh, the, image, the military um, image to an image of a ship. He says, some have made shipwreck of the faith. A ship will eventually go down. If it's not perfectly balanced, if it leaks, if it's compromised in any way. That's exactly what's already happened in Paul's previous experience with that church. He mentions a couple of people there that he's had to deal with. And so let's think just for a little bit here this morning about how we need to fight to preserve the gospel in our lives and in our church in our day. Timothy may have successfully dealt with these issues there in Ephesus. We, we don't know, although we do know that, that the church of Ephesus obviously doesn't exist anymore. Even by the time we read, we read Revelation, we can see that the church in Ephesus had lost its first love. The issues just keep coming back. The gospel is always under attack, both from the outside, and, and, and it's expected from the outside, isn't it? And we face all this even in our day with the different culture wars that are happening. But more dangerously, the, church, the gospel is sometimes under attack from the inside. Where, for example, one... A uh, megachurch pastor whose name many of you would know is now saying that, uh, you know the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He says, that, that song is fine for children, but it's not a good way for adults to think. We too need to engage in the battle to preserve the truth, to preserve the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The Bible tells us that Satan is ultimately behind these kinds of battles. And you see the references there in your notes, and you can look these up later, but he, he aims to keep people from the church in the first place as he blinds unbelievers to the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 tells us that he attacks marriage in the life of believers. Just up ahead a few verses in 1 Timothy 3 verse 7, it says that the devil sets snares for church leaders. And so we have an adversary that's behind these attacks on the gospel. And he is alive and he's living and he's trying to upset the faith of some. Praise God, we're not without weapons to engage in this battle. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5 says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And later on, he'll go and tell us that our weapon really is the Word of God to be able to fight against those things. Ephesians 6 adds prayer to this as well. And so God has equipped us to be able to handle the, be able to handle the schemes of the devil. He has equipped us to be able to wage the good warfare. It's a good warfare because God's gospel will always rise to the top, will always rise victorious. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. 
And he reminds Timothy that he's prepared to fight this fight. He he talks about prophecies previously made about you. We don't know exactly what those were. Chapter 4, verse 14, talks about a spiritual gift that Timothy had received by prophecy. Whatever that was, Paul is encouraging Timothy that he's been set aside for this purpose. Again, it might be a tough assignment, but God has enabled and empowered him for that task. So how can Timothy, how can we fight to keep from shipwrecking the faith? How do we maintain the faith to keep the ship seaworthy and sturdy and steady as she goes? How do we ensure it stays uncompromised? Well, what Paul tells us here in these short two verses tells us here how that battle can be won and he warns us how it can be lost. There are just two ways, right from the text. The battle is won by maintaining faith and a good conscience, and the battle is lost by rejecting faith and a good conscience. Paul encourages Timothy to hold faith. It's like when you're playing tennis and you're serving, he wants them to hold serve. That's the idea, right? But here he says, hold the faith and a good conscience. What holds these things Together are those two items here. Faith and a good conscience. Paul says, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, that is, the faith and the good conscience, some have made shipwreck of, it says they're their faith, but I'm going to argue that the right translation should be the faith. Rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of the faith. So what does Paul mean by holding faith and a good conscience? Well, let's take those one at a time, and then we'll connect them. When Paul is talking about faith here, I believe he's talking about our our beliefs. Specifically, the Christian set of beliefs. Faith, when you see it in the New Testament, can be used in two ways. It can mean to have faith in something or someone. You had faith that when you came in here this morning, that that chair that you sat on would hold you up when you sat on it. Sometimes around between 10.30 and 10.45, you exercised faith. But as Christians, we also put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We, we trust that Jesus lived the life that God requires, or that he required of all of humankind to live. That Jesus obeyed where we disobeyed. And that we put our faith in the fact that Jesus died instead of us taking the punishment that we deserve. That's, that's one way that faith is used. The other way is to use it in the sense of the faith. That is our, our set of beliefs. We, we talk sometimes about people of different faiths. They are differentiated by their set of beliefs. That's the way I think Paul is using this here. Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus to hold on to the Christian faith. He wants him to make sure that the church maintains and holds on to sound doctrine. He wants them to maintain the truth without compromise. He wants them to make sure they don't slip a little here or slip a little there. So, wage the good warfare, holding faith, And a good conscience. What does he mean by a good conscience? Well, Paul talks about conscience quite a bit in the letters to Timothy. The simplest way to think of it is as an inner voice. As that inner voice inside you that tells you what's right or what's wrong. Created by God. Everyone has a conscience, whether you're a believer or not a believer. But Christians have one that has been redeemed by God. And when he says, keeping a good conscience, he's talking about keeping your morals good. Listening to your conscience and then doing the right thing. The godly thing. This is not 
and an insignificant part of our brain that God has created. We would be foolish to mess with this. But people do that all the time. They ignore that inner voice. Well, this is simply saying, don't ignore it. Pay attention to it. You know, when you don't like what you hear on the radio, you can find another station. When you don't like what you see and hear on a television show, you can change the channel. When you don't like even the general noise around you, you can pop in your headphones. Do you know you can actually do that with your conscience too? 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 talks about people who have consciences that are seared. How does someone sear their conscience? You can sear your conscience by ignoring it, by not listening to it, by tuning it out, by sticking the headphones in to drown out that inner voice. If you do that enough times, eventually your conscience will get seared. And that's a dangerous place to be. So how do you keep a good conscience? Well, this is where faith and a good conscience intersect. The way to keep a good conscience is to know the faith, to know what you believe, and to keep endeavoring to know what you believe. The best way to keep your conscience good and to prevent it from getting seared is to be on a steady diet of God's Word, to read it, to meditate on it, to seek, to listen to God's voice regularly. Do you love the Bible? Do you read the Bible? The Bible will train your conscience. It will help you to maintain a good conscience. The way to keep your conscience good is to keep being around God's people. Surround yourself with the people of God, the church. Do not neglect to meet together, as it says in Hebrews 10. God's people will encourage you, and they will warn you. They'll help you apply God's word to your circumstances. They'll pray for you. Do you love God's people? Are people from your church your best friends? Seek and cultivate Christian friendships. Those friends won't be perfect, but they will seek to keep you in the faith. That's what God created the church for, one of the reasons. They'll help train your conscience. They'll help you maintain a good conscience. They'll help you with your holiness. They'll assist you in being set apart from the world. They won't allow you to sear your conscience. So if you absent yourself from the church, you're in danger of searing your conscience. If you keep getting around God's people, your conscience will be trained to be a good conscience. Being at the church will help you be in God's word. Just connecting those two again. Worshiping with the church will help you love God and adore God and sing to God and rehearse the glory of God in the gospel as you take the Lord's Supper as we did this morning with fellow believers. See how both of these things intersect? Faith and a good conscience. Doctrine, practice. Knowing, doing. Faith, morality. It all goes together. One leads together. Faith informs your morality. And this is especially important in the church. If we know what we believe, it'll mostly follow that we will do the right thing. That we will obey God. This is why here at this church we try to teach the Bible faithfully. We're not really big on being innovative or introducing new kinds of teaching or new ways of doing things. Yes, we want to be able to explain things so that they're understandable and relevant, but we really want to preach and teach the Bible. Innovation will not help you hold the faith. The church teaching the faith, as it's revealed in God's word, will help you wage the good warfare, holding the faith. 
And that will then help you maintain a good conscience. As you know God's Word, as you do God's Word, your conscience will inform what you do. It will keep you, Psalm 1 says, in the way of the righteous rather than in the way of the wicked. Paul mentions what happens to people who reject faith in a good conscience. He says it can shipwreck the faith. If you don't pay attention to, to faith in a good conscience, if you silence faith in a good conscience, it can shipwreck your faith. It can shipwreck the church's faith. When the ship is compromised in any way, the ship will sink. If the church has a compromised faith and a compromised conscience, it can do damage to the church. And so in order for shipwreck to be avoided, extreme measures need to be taken. That leak needs to be taken care of and dealt with post-haste. And Paul speaks from his previous experience of that in the church. He, He names a couple of trouble spots. A couple of men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that he handed over to Satan. You say, wow, that, that, that sounds kind of extreme. But like I said, rejection of sound doctrine and good conscience can be disastrous for the church. So desperate times call for desperate measures. Well, what does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? Well, in this context, and when you compare it to similar words in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 5, when it talks about a case of discipline in the church, it seems like it means that they were put out of the church, excommunicated. They were put out of the church and into the world, which is controlled by Satan. I think that's what it means. The world is under Satan's control. 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so they were put out of the protection, as it were, of the church. But notice that this was a repair job. This extreme measure was taken to fix the ship. To wage the good warfare. And even for the offenders, it was a restoration measure. The intent there at the end of verse 20 is that they might learn not to blaspheme. And really the hope with any kind of put out of the church discipline is to restore them. They were put out because they spoke against God and against the faith and tried to upset the faith of the church. The hope and prayer is that once they were away from the, the refuge and the protection of the church, that they, might too, they too might learn to hold the faith rather than to shipwreck the faith. To, as 1 Corinthians 5 says, that, that their spirits might be saved. Well, the point is that we always need to be in a battle to hold the faith, to preserve the gospel. It's a warfare, yes, but it is a good warfare. It's a noble kind of fight. I can tell you that the leaders of this church, your elders, will always be waging warfare to preserve the truth of the gospel and to be able to protect you from any kind of gospel aberrations. We take that charge seriously. We've been entrusted with that charge by you, yes, but even more importantly, we've been entrusted with that charge from God himself. You can help us with this by studying and knowing and loving God's Word. And then by listening to your uh, informed by the Word and the Holy Spirit conscience so that you do what is good, so that you do what is right, and so that you might do what is pleasing to God. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this 
uh, brief but very poignant word that you have given us this morning. I pray that you would help us now to, to, um, to take that seriously. It is a charge from God to us. It is a charge for us as individuals, and it is a charge for us as a church. Lord, we don't want to shipwreck the faith. And so we pray that you would keep us in your word. Help us to love your word. Keep us together in seeking to fellowship with your people, with the people of God. And I pray that all those things together would seek to help us to hold the faith and a good conscience. And now to the King of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.